Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Welcome back to The Advertising Show. Ray Shillins, Brad Forsyth. The Advertising Show is brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. Over the course of this year, we've been bringing you some great encore shows from the past. This one is no exception. This is from 2010, and it's our very special friend, Tim Arnold. Uh, Tim is CEO of a company called Possible 20. Uh, We'll tell you more about Tim and get into the interview. Let's listen. Tim Arnold is in New York uh, right now, as a matter of fact. Tim is uh, is uh, with a company. He's the founder, actually, of Possible 20. We'll tell you more about that. But uh, Arnold's uh, 35 years in the advertising communications industry defies definition. So we're going to pass that up. An agency president, multinational board member, a regularly published columnist, a global account leader, a musician who's produced numerous commercial tracks, as well as the first uh, GoDaddy.com Super Bowl TV commercial, director of global business development for the 135 office multinational agency. He founded Possible 20 some 25 years ago to accommodate his consultancy work for agencies, startup businesses, corporations, and entertainment companies. He likes to describe his day job. He is is titled one of the most responded to Adweek columns. It's called Making Stuff Happen, and isn't that what it's all about? Tim, I I need to read the rest of the bio, but this is uh, only an hour-long show. So with that said, welcome to the advertising show. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, uh, let's get this boring stuff out of the way quick so that we can get into this more interesting stuff about you and the life and times of Tim Arnold (laughs) and the ad business. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, Ad Age CMO strategy article entitled, Is Luxury Dead? Well, maybe not, as you would say, Tim. Uh, Your subtitle to that article today is Wealthy Consumers Favor Brands That Represent Quality, Aesthetics, and Authenticity. So, just the high level, if you would, Tim. Luxury is not dead, even in this economic crisis? Tell me more. Well, actually, uh, my original title for that uh, was Luxury is Dead, uh, or is it? And um, what is dead for sure are the the kind of historical values that have been associated with luxury for so long, like status and, you know, what others think of me because of the Armani suit I've got on and society's expectations and my whole life is about my career. You know, it used to be die, who, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Yeah. The, the, uh, this, new, this group of new affluents was a very interesting research um, that I um, was able to, to review through a working relationship with Dwell Magazine and their uh, strategy and research group. Um, demonstrates that there's some fairly profound value and attitude shifts in this uh, Upper income sector, uh, median income, household income, two hundred k. By the way, and it's it, these these so called new affluents are now well, they're part of the world. I mean, while they may or may not have been affected by the economy directly, as bad as some of the rest of us, they're certainly aware of it and and want to you know be show demonstrate some kind of responsibility toward it and awareness of it. So this kind of ostentatious flashy uh, excess purchase habit is, is 
gone by the wayside for these people. They're also very much uh, aware of and, and share concerns with uh, the rest of us about the environment and things like that. So, so they're very much part of the world. And for these new affluents, it, it, instead of status and what others think of, of, of me, it's now about what I think and how I express myself and my own personal taste. It's, um, you know, my career is important to me, but it's frankly, it's a means to an end. According to this survey, they have very high uh, priority on their own and their family's health and well-being. Uh, it's 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 in a nutshell, it's about quality, not quantity anymore. And they have and they also have a a, a concern for more sustainable products, if you will. It, it used to be you know buy it, use it, throw it away. Who cares? And uh, and now it's not. So I like to call this kind of shift uh, one of that's kind of like from a, being conspicuous consumers to conscious consumers. And So, uh, Tim, excuse me a second. I had a chance also, as you mentioned, the new uh, face of affluence study from Dwell Strategy. I had a chance to look at that, and I wanted to get your take. You say, uh, and this may be just an opinion that I'm asking for, because I'm not sure that I saw this in the executive summary that I read on the uh, on the research, and that is, Kind of looking for an explanation for this shift in attitude about brands among this particular new affluent group that you're talking of. What? Why the shift? I mean, I, I guess I could speculate myself, and I understand uh, a choice, a quality of life that a lot of people are making these days. And I think maybe that even preceded the uh, economic crisis that we're in. The people are looking more at a quality of life uh, issue as opposed to it all being around work. But some of these other issues that you bring up with regarding uh, brand choices, uh, you know, social status being so important, certainly during the uh, 2000s, uh, and that being something that's not so important these days and what other people think and so forth. Why do you think there's been a, a shift in this attitude? Well, you know, it's interesting. when you think about it, um, my assumption is that these by definition, these new affluents did not grow up with this money. You know, this is not old money we're talking about here, and I'm generalizing now. But it, these these are people like like us. I, I assume that that you know grew up and, and worked hard and, and made a decent living. But they grew up. We grew up with you know, in my case, good old Midwestern values. And yeah, I think I think just if you think about the roots for these people, that's that's one thing. Um, and I just think, you know, they're, they're highly educated, um, um, median age 45. I mean, these are grown-ups who have come through, you know, 70s and 80s and seen the, the, the kind of thing fall apart after the bubble burst. And are, obviously we're all confronting enormous socioeconomic issues now. And I just think that they're smart enough to make more conscious decisions uh more considered decisions and, and they they really are i mean when you look at uh, their favorite brands i think it, it really it begins to paint a, a, a great a great picture i mean of course they're they're picking brands like like bmw and ralph lauren and porsche and lexus and chanel and, and so on and so forth but what's interesting and, and and yet not so amazing when you think about the values that i was talking about earlier they also include the part of the questionnaire was name your favorite brands and and, and Dwell sorted them out to a, a group of seventy five out of a total of almost seven hundred that got the most mentions and so their favorite brand list also includes brands like Crate and Barrel, IKEA, Target, 
Whole Foods, Levi's, mm-hmm. the Gap, you know, Volkswagen, Craftsman Tools. I mean, so and so. What I think is interesting, and what I talked about at the Integrated Marketing Summit in Minneapolis uh, recently was what these brands have in common. And I think you begin to see that when they talk about things like quality that are important to them and price value even and authenticity, I mean, these these are like really interesting kind of core brand values that I think a, a Porsche and a BMW, frankly, can share with a Target even. Um, or, or a room and board, which is another one of their favorite brands. So that, to me, represents, you know, my take on that is that there's, first of all, you got to be smart enough to understand what these people are thinking and what their values are now. But then, you're, then, you, then you can say, wait a minute, maybe I never thought of these higher income people as a, as a potential source of revenue. And that, for me, is where it really gets interesting. And, um, and by the way, I think Target is one of the brands that's done a brilliant job of uh, maintaining their base and embracing design as a, as a destination with their ex- expect more, pay less. Not only their advertising, which I think is eye candy, oh, yeah. by and large, but with things like um, the, the Target Design Center at the Cooper uh, Hewitt Museum in New York. They have uh, multiple programs on their websites that, that include uh, Dream in Color. And, you know, they, Michael Graves started designing tea kettles for them back in 2000. And since then, they've, they've got all kinds of designers in there. And what they've done, and what I think this study, at least one, another take I have on this study, is that, and Target's a great example, they have democratized design. Hmm. I mean, technology has broken down barriers, first of all, that never existed before. And that's one of the main reasons that these new affluents, like the rest of us, feel like they're part of the world now. And so what, what you find, I mean, there's, now you can paint a scenario that says, here comes a guy into Target that makes three hundred and fifty grand a year, and he's shopping up and down the rows with, with <laughs> Joe the plumber. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, it's kind of, so it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that, that all of us can wear Levi's sometimes, you know, and, sure. and, and all of us can maybe drive a Subaru, which is another uh, favorite brand on the list. And, and so, you know, you don't want to get too crazy about it, but I think there's a very interesting kind of democratization going on here. Le- Levi's or Levi's, no matter where you get them, but Target is absolutely a great destination to go find those things as well. I have a problem with a Subaru, but that's all right. It's uh, Rachel and Brad Forsyth here on the Advertising Show. Tim Arnold is our guest. He is the founder of Possible 20 out of New York. It's Possible 20. That's Possible20.com. We're going to continue our conversation uh, with Tim and, of course, Ray and Brad here in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Not so many years ago, tomato soup and cream of tomato were unusual dishes, enjoyed very much, but not very often. Welcome back. Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth here with our very special guest out of New York. It is the founder of Possible 20, Tim Arnold. Uh, Tim, considering the fact that you are originally from uh, St. Louis and uh, you launched uh, this Buds for You campaign and led the brand uh, to record growth for 10 years, what type of beer do you drink today, Tim? 
I drink vodka. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when you, you work on the brand. Beer drinker and, uh, yeah. and I, I, you know, I'll, I drink Budweiser. You know. yes, um, you... Although, the piece before the one that was just published in CMO, I took on InBev a little bit of when they were taking over Anheuser-Busch, and uh, I was really, uh, like a lot of other people, I was, uh, frankly, I was disappointed. Um, yeah. And uh, now I, I'm afraid some of my my head reservations are even coming to the fore in terms of what it looks like from the outside, some of their corporate kind of mindset is, is, is it looks like it may be, you know, getting in the way of, of uh, some of the things that, that those AB brands have done so well for so long. But that's, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's only my observation. It's got to be a little bit painful, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, and for those interested, uh, it's a fascinating research. Uh, Dwell, D-W-E-L-L.com is a great place to go to read up more on that. And as promised, I have got to learn more. And I know Ray and I discussed this before today's show. We've just got to hear more, Tim, about this unbelievable adventure that you had. That involves the Saturday Night Live folks and a little post party after the uh, taping of Saturday Night Live several years what, ago. What was this right place, right time, or what? Uh, no, it was a little more than that. Um, you know, I've been—I uh, guess I've been blessed to have some pretty incredible uh, experiences over the years with you know big, big brands with 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 strong budgets and and you know the kind of courage to get behind some pretty brave stuff and and we we kind of um re we actually repositioned budweiser back then with the launch of this bud for you uh believe it or not it, the budweiser was kind of a white collar brand before that um hmm. you know big strong association of course with ed mcmahon and the tonight show and all that stuff so we uh and and, and i've always been candid about the fact that miller is the one who discovered blue collar beer drinkers that drank 80 percent of the beer but i think you know i think history shows that we kind of one-upped them on that with this outright salute to the working man. And what we also learned back then was, and, and I've never gotten an argument with this, that, that I think Budweiser was probably the first major brand to really do substantial market segmentation. Uh, you know, because we had different issues with each segment. You know, we were, Bud was always no, uh, number one because they were no worse than pretty much everybody's second choice. But um, we were not number one, and, and I don't think any particular segment back then, um, certainly not young adults, as we called them back then, certainly not blacks, certainly not Hispanics. And so we came up with this idea that we had to do something really outrageous uh, with this, I think it was the third or fourth year of Saturday Night Live, that you know, basically said, hey, guys, we're not your old man's beer. We're a beer for you. And we just went outrageous we, we we you know our strategy was be irreverent and we created this campaign called the taste buds uh and sure our idea because they were so unusual and so much skit like that like saturday night live was that we thought we might want to hire the uh the, the show's director a guy named dave wilson so i turned i turned a 10-minute meeting with lauren michaels um into like a three-day hangout with the the rehearsals and you know the, the and I got to be, you know, um, acquainted with, if you will, Belushi and Aykroyd and all these guys. And so uh, the night, uh, between, uh, Saturday night, between um, uh, dress rehearsal and the show, 
Michael's secretary comes over and says, kind of hemming and hawing, but she says, you know, we usually the boys have the pass the hat for the beer money for their blues club down there. You know, it's just a private thing that that Danny, as we call him, and, and Belushi own. Yeah. And uh, and she said, I went to John while I go, and he, she said, he said basically, screw that, get Arnold to get the beer. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah. Here comes Belushi. I, well, I I managed to, you know. Um, uh, and 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 Belushi comes over and says, "Hey man, that was great." He said, "And the Blues Brothers just come out." So he said, and he he knew by then that I was a, a you know a wannabe blues player. And he said, right. "I'll get you some records or some albums and blah blah blah." And, and uh, I looked John Belushi in the eye and I said, "The hell with that. Where's the party?" <laughs> <laughs> and he tells me, and, and he said, "Well, it's just you, right?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah," because he said it was really private. And you know, you've read all the books or whatever people have. You know, you know what. Sure. What kind of stuff goes on down there? And he, it's, so it's down there. It's right in the bower. This is when I still lived in St. Louis, of course. And so I don't know if he's stringing me along or what. I I, mean, I showed up at like two o'clock in the morning, and the, the the bottom line of this experience, of which there was only about forty people in this, in which you can find at adweek.com, one of my columns is it's called Life from New York. Is at seven a.m. the only three people left were me and John Belushi and Bill Murray. <laughs> you can imagine the kind of state we were all in, and I said, "Wait a minute! I've got a plane to catch. I got to go home. How the hell? I don't even know where I am or how to get back to my hotel." And they said, "Murray says, well, you, here's you got to call the Skull Cab Company.' <laughs> I'll never forget it." And uh, and and I did, and, and lo and behold, there comes this guy, and I, he takes me back to my the Essex house where Saturday Night Live guests stay. You know, back then. <laughs> Yeah, I woke up about twelve hours later, missed my flight, and you know. But boy, I had a story, and uh, <laughs> you have a story for life to tell. That is a great story, and what a unique and wonderful time to be affiliated uh, and, and been in contact with those incredibly talented folks at uh, Saturday Night and Live. Just really, you know, once you got past the, I mean, they were just like wise guys, like the rest of us, you know, and they just were brilliantly talented, but looking for a great time. And uh, yeah, I got to tell you one more piece about that. But there was. There was all the guys were there, and the Doobie Brothers were there, and Richard Dreyfus, who I got in an argument with, and Art Garfunkel, and I see this this beautiful woman across the, the way, and Aykroyd's out there, and the, they have a big jukebox blasting, and Aykroyd's dancing with some woman. I see this gorgeous young woman across the room, and I go over and I say, uh, I mean, I figured I just might as well act like I belong there, you know. So I went over there and I said, "Hi, I'm Tim Arnold." She says, "Hi, I'm Amy Irving." And uh, oh, really? I said, come on, let's dance. And she said, great. And so we danced about a lot, you know. And finally, and, and we're like, you know, it looks to me like we're kind of getting along, you know. And I figured out who she was finally. And um, <laughs> she, she finally looks at me, and, and this, is, this is a quote. She said, Tim, she said, we just can't get anything started. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what? I mean, I'm just having fun. I mean, I'm married at the time, but I, what I said to her was, well, hey, why not? She said, well, I'm, I'm living with this guy now. I said, yeah, who? She said, well, Steven Spielberg, he makes films. <laughs> <laughs> you were dancing with some very special people there, Tim. Anyway, that's, uh, I, mean, I probably went on too long. And that, no, that's okay. That's a story from Saturday Night Live as it relates to Tim Arnold. And it's whatever Tim says, okay? Uh, the Advertising Show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth, back with another segment with Tim here in just a moment. We're, uh, uh, on the line uh, this weekend with uh, Tim Arnold, who is founder of Possible20, possible20.com. Tim, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. 
You know, it's too bad that we only have three segments with you, Tim, because you've got such a sundry of topics here that we could chat about. And one in particular uh, that got both Ray and my attention was the fact that I know you were involved and produced the first GoDaddy Super Bowl commercial that aired in Fox, as I recall. And and this was uh, post uh, Janet Jackson and Nipplegate, which probably caused some huge problems for you guys and clarence tell us a little bit about that yeah that that was that was pretty amazing and i you know i i think i could probably turn this whole episode into a harvard case study because uh <laughs> the result of all this madness was that the, the bob parsons business at GoDaddy just went through the roof and stayed there but um the jackson um um incident if you will in combination with i think broader things that were going on at the time like uh the new Bush Cheney administration that that had a you know a kind of a chilling effect on on in general, uh, if you will, and um, and then also um, it came after like the year after. Um, I'm sorry to say, my old friends at Budweiser had a Super Bowl commercial on there uh, that featured a farting Clydesdale, <laughs> and uh, there was other stuff that that um, got a lot of uh, objections raised from viewers that that so so by the time we want to put GoDaddy on the Super Bowl the conventional wisdom says you, you everybody needs to cool it because they're not going to put up with this kind of stuff anymore well, we said you know to hell with that my partner Paul Capelli at the ad store and I um, and especially with a client like Parsons who's a, a genuine cowboy and hellraiser and, and and savvy Parsons wants to go on the Super Bowl he wants you know he's smart enough to know that the only thing that's missing from his marketing mix is, is national or international brand awareness so here we go and um, you know after a few creative reviews um, he looks at Paul and I finally says you know what here's what I want um, and I this is a quote from him that's been published in Adweek Parsons looked at Paul and I said all I want in my commercials a girl with big tits and my name across her chest <laughs> <laughs> and Quote, unquote. And, and so we're like kind of laughing for a minute, and then we look at them and look at each other, and we say, wait a minute, this guy's serious. <laughs> so our job at that point became to kind of like save him from himself. And so I think what we did, uh, pretty much going in, but certainly in hindsight, was, was walk a fine line between like going over the top and, and, and just being, you know, cleverly outrageous, if you will, and, um, and cast this, um, the casting sessions were pretty cool, by the way. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm up with uh, Candace Michelle, who turns out to be fabulous and very kind of spontaneous. And a couple of the lines in the commercial were actually hers. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, excuse me. We got the uh, the storyboard approved by Fox, and then um, we hired Brian Buckley, a, a fabulous director, and and uh, so on. And we've committed to a, a nearly a one million dollar production. And um, the night before, I'm to go out to L.A the shoot i'm on the train i get a call myself from the guy the clearance uh, guy at fox saying you know what we've thought about this more and we're not gonna we're not gonna go there he says we're not gonna approve this commercial and so of course i hit the roof and demanded explanations and blah 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 and uh, it, uh you know so what, what i knew then was we had to go out there and shoot it in a bunch of different versions and uh, and we did and we came back and then they wouldn't approve the the original edit of the commercial for two reasons one is what they called excess cleavage. And this is from the network that at the time 
had shows like The Simple Life where uh, where Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie are running around half naked, yeah. and uh, and a show called North Shore, which they promoted as Sun, Surf, Sand, and Sex, <laughs> and you know class class shows like Trading Spouses and Temptation Island, and I'm going, wait a minute. You know, I guarantee you that this commercial is going to be at least as good a taste as your own shows, <laughs> which they didn't like. But anyway, we ended up negotiating um, through several edits. Uh, we got past the uh, excess cleavage, quote unquote, issue, only to discover when they aired the Super Bowl, of course, they're shooting the sideline cheerleaders who've got much more cleavage on camera than we ever did in our commercial. But the other issue was. You cannot use the following two words in this spot. Wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> the FCC had just levied an enormous fine on CBS uh, for the Jackson Janet Jackson incident, um, which was later uh, uh, canceled. But um, the, the air just wasn't in there to, to, for this commercial to, uh, in the view of Fox. So anyway, we got, we got rid of wardrobe malfunction. We edited the commercial. We got it finally approved at the last minute, and it was set to, uh, to be shown twice. So it airs in the first quarter as scheduled and um, started generating what turned out to be 5 million web hits on the GoDaddy site in the next 48 hours. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. I mean, this is, this is good business. Oh, yeah. Um, and then it's scheduled to run again in the fourth quarter, and it doesn't. Instead, they're running a promotion for some snoopy show or something and we're and the clients calling me and the bells are going off and i have no clue uh but but they yanked it um and 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 i know why i know how that happened now but um they yanked it then and and as a consequence gave us tens of millions of dollars of unpaid brand uh mentioned across the media because right. they not only because of the nature of the commercial, but because it was canceled. I mean, sixty minutes did a segment on it the following week. It was just, it was nuts. And so, for for me anyway, it was the the kind of ultimate in in what broadcast hypocrisy. I mean, it's just here's a network that probably at, certainly at that point set the low bar for you know <laughs> taste, quote unquote, in programming, telling so, us that we've got I, too much cleavage in our commercial, which we never did anyway. And, I can't um, let I Tim, Tim. I can't let you get out of here, and I know we're running short, Ray. Without telling us now, why was that pulled? Did you get a call from the White? Uh, did Fox get a call from somebody higher up, was, not within uh, that organization, but like no, within the government? It, there was. I'll put it this way: in the in the box at the Super Bowl, watching the game, were um, a couple of corporate advertising heavyweights, one of whom objected to it, just from the nature of the commercial. The other one was pissed off because they tried the same thing and couldn't get it cleared at all. <laughs> and the, the uh, Phil Garaccio, the former GM uh, marketing director who was then NFL's marketing director, was amongst the group and uh, he caught hell and, and said, yank it, it's not worth it. Wow. So, you know, there's 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 that story. But... Um, it, it's it, it's sustained, you know. GoDaddy to this day continues to to be the dominant shareholder in that in that sector. And and like I said earlier, I think this makes a classic kind of business case because it was it you know as crazy as it was, it, it was it made great business. 
Well, Ray, I think uh, this concludes our time with Tim, unless we've got time for one more question. Well, I was gonna, I was waiting for another question, so uh, well, go for it. Go for it. I can't. Well, let me ask you, and there's a personal interest in this. I know that you have a great story about trying to negotiate a commercial deal with Sly St- St- uh, Stallone. What can you tell us about that? That was just a, you know a momentary blip. I actually met him twice. The first time was on behalf of Budweiser when when a handful of us met him at, at his suite at Caesar's Palace and we had uh, Paul Newman drove a Bud race car and we wanted Stallone to get involved with us. So frankly, I've forgotten what the nature of it was, but uh, um, I was explaining to him our relationship with Newman and the fact that it included his on-camera presence and we would require that from you too, Sly. And he looks at me and says, are we negotiating now? And I said, no, that's up to somebody else. <laughs> that never got put together. Then I visited with him with the Burger King marketing later, a uh, marketing uh, director later on, and uh, we wanted to do a program to support autism because w- at least one of his children uh, mm. w- w- was suffering from that at the time. But um, y- you know, the, we got halfway through this dialogue, and the guy from Burger King looked at Stallone and said, "You don't really want to do this, do you?" <laughs> Which is like the ultimate bad way to. You know, try and close the deal, and Stallone said, "Well, you know, if you, if that's all there is to it, I guess not." So that hmm. kind of blew up. But I, that's that was a couple of little incidents. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to write a book one day. Uh, actually, it's going to be called "Getting Away with It." Okay, good. I like that. I'll buy it. It's Tim Arnold, founder of Possible Twenty, Possible Twenty dot com, and that is the number twenty. Uh, find out more about that. Tim, what a pleasure to uh, to to speak with you, and uh, we learned a lot of stuff that I'm sure nobody on earth knew uh, outside of your circle of friends. So we, yeah, we, we my appreciate great that. Pleasure, and I'd be happy to do it again. I got more stories. <laughs> Good for you. On the advertising show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsythe. There's more. Hang in there. We'll be right back. Hope you enjoyed our encore presentation with Tim Arnold here on the advertising show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsythe, being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com, the advertising show, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. And it's powered by a program from our good friends at Shipple. That's S-C-H-I-P-U-L, Shipple.com. Ed and his crew in Houston are amazing. Check it out. Uh, it's something you might want to think about for your business. Uh, it, uh, it's uh, S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com, Shipple.com. Thanks, Ed. On the Advertising Show, hope you enjoyed the show today. We invite you to come back anytime throughout the week. Check out the website and listen to shows uh, at your convenience. But, of course, come back for these great encore shows as well every week as we present them on the Advertising Show. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications. And it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.